How many of us have ever been through a, uh, a house remodeling project? You've been through a house or even an office remodeling? Okay, you poor things. Um, so you know, you guys know that when remodeling a home, uh, relationships are critically important, right? Think of all the people involved. The builder you've got has to be skilled and, and must be trustworthy. And an unscrupulous builder runs the whole project. A lot of times there's financing needed. Uh, quite often, you got to have a good relationship there. The, the home builders, the homeowners have their own responsibilities. And then, of course, you got family and friends who almost always are needed for help, right? It, it, it often takes, let me put it this way, it takes a village to remodel a home. In a similar way, lives, our lives, also need remodeled on a regular basis. And the same principles apply. When it comes to our souls, there is a regular process of remodeling that is necessary. And just as with homes, God uses a village of people to help reshape and restore our lives. Open your Bible to the letter of Philemon. I'll show you. You'll find Philemon in your New Testament just before little Philemon, just before the big book of Hebrews. Go to Philemon, and let's uh, read verse 17, our last section, our last study in Philemon. We'll pick it up in verse 17. So if you, Philemon, consider me, the Apostle Paul, a partner... Accept him, that's Onesimus, you'll hear about him in a moment, as you would me. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self. Yes, brother, may I have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Since I'm confident of your obedience, I'm writing to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile... Also prepare a guest room for me, for I hope that through your prayers I will be restored to you. <clears throat> Look at all the remodeling terms. You see them? Uh, here's just a few. Repay, refresh, restored. Those are, those are reconciling terms. At the close of this letter to Philemon, God lays out the things we've got to do if we're going to help ourselves and help others in life restoration. Lives need remodeled, and this shows us how to do it. It all begins in verses 17 through 19, and the need to stand in the gap for others. Pastor Jeremy earlier in the service used that phrase on purpose. Uh, by the way, it's the headline you'll find in our notes. Uh, look, at, look at your bulletin you got when you came in. Look on the left-hand side. You'll see that, that phrase, stand in the gap. To stand in the gap for someone is to step into their place. Notice the instruction. Accept him as you would me. Paul writes to his friend, his fellow elder uh, Philemon, to accept Onesimus as a direct representation of Paul himself. Now let me tell you about these characters. Paul is the apostle of God who started most of the churches in Asia Minor. He is a Jew who also holds Roman citizenship. Philemon is the wealthy leader of the church in Colossae. His name means loving, and he is about as Greco as a human being can get. Uh, by the way, in Ephesus, uh, a major Asia Minor city, the Apostle Paul had led Philemon to faith in Christ. Onesimus, this guy, he was Philemon's bond slave. That means it's somebody who had willingly bound himself to work for Philemon. But Onesimus ran away without fulfilling his contract. But he ran smack dab into Paul, who led Onesimus to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon with this message. These three are partners, right? The message is we are partners. Surely as you and I are partners with all of the disparate Christians in our place and time, these people are partners. And God gives, inspires a great word here in verse 17. Look, koinonon is a derivative of a word Paul used earlier in the, in the letter, koinonia. This is a really loaded word in Greek thought. And, and Paul, 
educated in Greek philosophy, is writing to Greek people, and he uses koinonon for a very specific purpose. This is a term that Plato and Aristotle and Hesiod batted around, and here's how they, they discussed koinonon. It was a word they used when they were talking about the individual and the individual's relationship to society. Okay? How does an individual rightly relate to society? So they came up with this, this form of koinonia called koinonon. Here's what a koinonon is. It's someone who keeps his individual identity. Okay? This is someone who keeps her property, but that person also happily shares that identity and shares that property with other people in his or her circle. In fact, the koinonon identifies with the other people in his circle as himself. Do you get what Paul's saying? Look, each of these dudes stands alone before God. Each controls his own life as God's steward of his life, his property, and yet each of them also voluntarily shares with others because they identify with each other. Philemon, Paul says, if you are my koinonon, accept this forgiven and changed Onesimus as me because he's now part of us. He is part of our whole. When Jana and I closed on our house, <clears throat> she was on a previously purchased trip uh, that could not be canceled. So she was overseas when I closed on the house. So that meant that I had to write over 75 times in the closings. I had to write this on the lines that were for her name. I had to write, Jana Broderick, a.k.a. Jana Lynn Broderick, by Michael Wayne Broderick as attorney in fact. Wrote that out 75 times plus. In fact, apparently it was a big deal that they allowed me to write a.k.a. That was apparently a huge concession that I didn't have to write also known as. And yes, before you even ask, I have requested that my sweetheart henceforth refer to me as attorney, in fact. Um, <laughs> seriously, I was fascinated by God's timing. Here I was, I was studying Philemon, right? And I'm thinking on Paul's declaration that Onesimus be accepted as Paul himself, and then I'm required to write out this great modern illustration 75 times. I felt like, like Bart Simpson being forced to write something 75 times on the chalkboard to ensure that I learned it. And what I learned from Philemon and from our closings is that I do stand in the gap for my precious wife. She does the same for me. She and I represent each other before the world. We are truly attorneys in fact for each other. And our circle is even wider. It is much wider. Everyone who believes in Jesus, those people are our brethren. There are koinonon. We are koinonon. Without losing our individuality, we are bound together in Jesus. We are attorneys in fact for each other. All God's people said, amen. May it be so. That's why Paul could say, charge that to my account. You see that? Man, what an incredible example of truly putting one's money where one's mouth is. Paul, you know, Paul's in prison when he writes this. He has no regular income at all, but he is willing to give what he has in order to restore Onesimus and Philemon's relationship. Charge to my account. That is a very bold kind of standing in the gap for another. I have, been <clears throat> I have been the blessed recipient of many such moves by those who have shepherded me in life. Here's just one example. It's a great example. This is a letter that June Leininger wrote. June was the um, executive secretary of Pine Cove Camps, and she wrote to Chris Camp in Germany to the directors there on behalf of my buddy Mike Bertino and me. She wrote on behalf of, to use our camp names, Backstop and Drano. 
I won't bore you with this. Uh, I was Drano, still am. Um, I won't bore you with the letter, but in essence, what June does is she lays her relationship with these people. She lays her reputation and even her money on the line for a couple of goofball kids from Pine Cove just so that we can get a leg up and get started at the ministry in Germany. And Chris Camp responded. They welcomed us. They would end up adopting us like their own. That camp became a very rich place of blessing in my life. In fact, I might have stayed there permanently. The opportunity was extended. I was very flattered. And I might have stayed there and been a camp director in Germany for the rest of my life. But I had met this girl named Jana just before I left. Jana likes to say that we met and fell in love and Wayne left the country. Um, <laughs> but there was this strong draw back to Texas. Since those days, I myself have written many similar letters, and I have found it a source of immense delight to put my name and even my money on the line for other Christians, especially ones who, who are needing a boost. Now, like Paul, I don't do that lightly. Uh, sometimes I defer, sometimes I even refuse. Uh, but when there is a reason to trust that brother or sister, my koinonon, it is an honor to speak on their behalf. I think Dr. Mellick gets to the heart of the matter as he discusses Philemon. Look at the quote in your notes. Uh, he says, Christian fellowship involves participation in the lives of others. It involves a willingness to become involved in making others' lives better. Close quote. Amen? Amen. So be it. Well, then act on this. Think. What letter do you need to write? What money do you need to offer? Where, where do you need to stand in the gap for another Christian? Picture it right now. Picture it. And then do it. Now, read verses 20 through 21. Stand in the gap. Yes, brother, may I have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. Since I am confident of your obedience, I'm writing to you knowing you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I hope that through your prayers I will be restored to you. Big idea in this section is to benefit others. Benefit others. And to benefit another, you should share joy. What my Holman Bible renders, may I have joy, is translated in most of your translations as let me have benefit. Uh, the Greek term is oninemi. Uh, it, means to, it, it means both. It means to benefit someone and to make them joyful. And if you just think about it, the two ideas go together. When you do something for someone, when you benefit them, there's a joy in that. There's a shared joy. You feel joy in it. You share joy with them. Their joy comes back to you. It's really a beautiful circle of delight. I recently read Caesar's Gallic Wars. I highly recommend it. One of the best books I've ever read. It is amazing how Julius Caesar motivated his troops. Those troops of his in Gaul, in what we would call France, they were the fastest moving army the world had ever ever seen at that point. The, the Energizer Battery Company should have used them for the picture instead of a bunny. They were amazing. What made them act with such celerity, with such power? Caesar shared his joy with them. You see it all through the book. The, 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 this general's actions and speeches show amazing concern for his troops. He is genuinely concerned for them. He paid them out of his own pocket most of the time. Every good thing that came to him as a result of the work, he passed right back onto them and shared it. When we share our joy, it energizes other people. We build them up. We bless them. Scripture says the joy of the Lord is our strength, right? And that joy is supposed to bubble up inside us. We are supposed to be effervescent people of living water, and it flows out to others. 
So just think, in the course of a normal day, we run into many people who are low on joy, don't we? People who, people who have no bubbles, or very few. Uh, people tired after a day at work. People who haven't had their coffee yet. Um, those who are ill or homesick or confused or, or, or griping or wounded. What do those folks need? They need the exact same thing Paul desires. Look, Paul is in prison when he writes this. He is falsely accused under serious persecution, so he expresses his desire. Please share joy with me. And how does he want to get joy? He wants to see his brother do what's right. That's what will encourage him. That's what will give him joy. Don't misunderstand this. It is not our job to make anyone happy. That's not our job. People need to respond to the Lord. He alone can fix things. But we can and should do our part to energize the troops. We can and should do our part to help infuse some, some bubbles, some joy into the stale hearts of our brethren. Right? I was feeling rather low on bubbles the other day. Okay? I was, in fact, long story, but I, the bottom line is I was feeling pretty disgusted with humanity. I was really down on the creepiness of humanity. And as I talked to the Lord about this, and I was really grumpy, my email dinged, and, and one of you sent me a video and said, you need to stop whatever you're doing and see this. So I clicked the button and saw this. Abigail, Emily, Grace, and Michaela. My turn. There we go. Folks, this goes on for four minutes. But we, we're only showing you 40 seconds. You only get a tithe of it. Yeah. Look at that. Abigail, Emily, Grace, and Michaela are about the sweetest little quadruplets ever, aren't they? And their joy in loving each other made me smile. They, they, they benefited me by infusing me with renewed joy. Now, just a couple days after that experience, I attended the funeral of a lady who was so effervescent. She was so full of God's joy that flowed over to others that I, I've never experienced this before. The people who spoke at her service used the word joy of her over 100 times. It, it, was the, it was the number one. No one could say anything about her without saying joy, joy, joy repeatedly. That's, that's our calling, right? That's who we're to be. Cradle to grave, Christians are, are commissioned by God to go and to hug and to share joy. All God's people said? Amen. And notice on the right side of our notes, we highlight the clause, do even more. Paul is confident Philemon will do even more than he's asked to do. You know, nothing energizes a group more than those people who go above and beyond, right? Uh, David Barnes does that for our church, uh, for our staff here in Frisco. Not only does David do a brilliant job directing our facilities, but he's also our new missions director. He is he is actively wonderful in each role, and I've asked him to come up and join me. David's going to have a seat. Uh, even though he hates being up front, he very kindly agreed to come. Uh, David, oh, I forgot my clicker. David, you, um, I asked you here for a couple of things, but mainly because you were the leader of our uh, trip that we sent to, um, to where the hurricane had devastated everything. So we're, we're talking about this doing more and this infusion of joy. What were, um, 
What were the bubbles like? What, what were the people like when you guys arrived in that neighborhood you were going to work in? They were mentally and physically depleted. Uh, hope was very low. Yeah, yeah. Were they able to even get started and do much of anything? Once we started working, um, they chipped in. They started helping. And the more we worked, the harder they worked. Isn't that fascinating? It was amazing. Yeah, that is really cool. I have uh, a child who shall remain nameless that, um, that gets stuck like that sometimes. And, uh, and sadly, the child's now going to know my trick. But, um, but I, will, I will go into the room, the kid's room, and I will just, something needs done, and I'll just do one little thing. Just move one thing, and then that gets the ball rolling, and next thing you know, he or she is, uh, is doing brilliantly. Um, the, I never talk about my kids without permission. I didn't have permission. So um, it, tell about the, there was one house you were working on, and there was a lady next door that was feeling really defeated. Am I remembering that correctly? Um, the older lady came out, was feeling really helpless. Um, is, that, is that right? Am I remembering that one? Um, uh, Almost every house we went to, yeah. that was the case. Yeah. Most of them didn't have flood insurance, so right. what we were doing was above and beyond yeah. uh, what could be expected. And the, um, and the notes we got back were fascinating. They were, um, a lot of these weren't Christians, but the notes weren't sour. They weren't, uh, they weren't angry anymore. They, there, was, there was a hope there. That's what happens when you do more. Now, uh, one more question, David, do more. You, you do more. I mean, you not only direct the facilities here, you're our missions director, um, and, and you and I know the, the active and yet restful life you live. You, you do more than just about anybody I know, but you do it without a sense of stress. You do it with a sense of peace. Um, any tips for all these hardworking people out there? Really, I just have to keep uh, my eyes off of myself and on whatever project or whatever goal we have. Is, uh, as soon as I put my eyes on myself, Mm, well said. All right, so let's make it hard for him. Give him a hand. Tell him thank you. We'll put our eyes on him. No, thank you, David. Let's be, let's be like David. Let's be like Philemon. Let's do more wisely unto the Lord to benefit the brethren without burning out. Amen? Third beneficial aspect of this section is Paul instructs Philemon to prepare to help God's people. Verse, verse 22, Meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me. Paul hopes to be exonerated soon. It's totally false charges against him. And he asks Philemon to be ready to help if he's released from prison. This is a principle that runs all through the Bible. Be ready to help the family of God. For example, Paul writes about this in Galatians. Read with me, if you would, please. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, you take the underlined text. The one who is taught the message must share all his good things with the teacher. So we must not get tired of doing good. For we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Amen. Who belong to the household of faith. Prepare a guest room. Seek to do good. How can we apply that today? Well, in a very literal way, many of you uh, do that every year when you host and feed all those Camp in the City staff that we have for our, for our wonderful, massive camp in the city where so many kids come to faith in Christ and grow up. Uh, a few of my friends 
really focus on this part where, where Paul said, uh, share good things with the teacher. What they do is, I've got some friends who in their family budget, they, uh, they have a line item, they have a little account that they set money aside for all the time, they just put a little aside, and that is specifically for occupational ministers, people who are in ministry that have need. Uh, Janet and I actually have a, a, a fund just like that in our budget. And, uh, and we're able to use it. What, what we do is we use it a little bit during the year and then, and then it gets saved up. Some of you do this as well. And when, this, when the church does the big staff appreciation offering in the fall, we get to empty it out and put all that in there to encourage all of our staff. That's one way that we can prepare to help the brethren. And a, a number of us, uh, let me give you a third example, a number of us have been blessed by our church's benevolence fund. If, if you don't know what that is, it is a special fund for people in crisis need. It can only be accessed by members of the church. The elders will access it on their behalf and help those who are members that are in special need because we're first to take care of the household of faith. And, and the Benevolence Fund of your church has helped many, many people. A number of you give to that fund every month uh, or at least regularly, and that is a beautiful way to prepare to help God's people. However you find to apply this, just do so. All right, live it out. Prepare your heart, prepare your home, prepare your budget to help God's people. Fourth thing Paul mentions in this personal primer on benefiting others is to pray. He asks for prayer. Specifically, he says, pray toward restoration. This is a must. But sadly, it tends to be the last thing we do when restoration is needed, right? Here's what I've observed. When we are in crisis, especially a life or death crisis, we pray immediately. We, we are casting ourselves on the God of the universe. We pray when we are in crisis. But when the situation is chronic, especially if it is a relational situation where there is relational chronic tension, we tend to, we tend to do a lot of other things instead of pray. My friends, uh, Carrie and Mary had been close pals since high school. I mean, really close. In fact, even as moms in their 50s, they spoke nearly every day. They spent time as families together with their husbands and their kids at least twice a month, even though they live over 50 miles apart. It was beautiful. But then sin devastated Carrie's family. And, of course, the pain spread to her friends, as pain always does. Mary was very wounded by this horror in Carrie's family. And so Mary withdrew. She put up a little fence of defense to protect herself, as human beings tend to do. So what did Carrie do in response to that? that, that she needed her friend. Worst crisis of her life, and her friend is really distant. What did, what did Carrie do? She did the same stupid things that you and I always do. She pushed, and she whined, and she complained, and she manipulated, and she begged, and she bleated like a fool on social media. Finally, exhausted, Carrie prayed. She just cried and prayed, trusting God. A few days later, Carrie got this text from Mary, and I quote, they sent it to me. Carrie, I need to meet with you ASAP. I was in Bible study, and this sentence jumped out at me from our study guide. We must do whatever it takes to reconcile broken relationships so God can be glorified, close quote. I am so sorry I haven't been there for you, but I want to show that I am still and ever will be your sister, Mary. Now, whether the Lord chooses to restore like that or not, we must pray for restoration first. It will do, it will do more than anything else to shift our focus onto the Lord of our partnerships. 
Speaking of partnerships, the last section describes being a co-worker with the saints. Read the last part of the letter. Epaphras, verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is a not-so-subtle call for Philemon to become a co-worker in reconciliation. In our notes, you'll find a comment from our first study we did in Philemon. Uh, the quote is, This is more than a mere first-century letter. It's actually crafted according to the rules of Latin rhetoric. Okay? Let me explain. In the Greco-Roman world, rhetoric was central to education. Words were considered the ultimate power. And since the Romans loved law, they, they excelled at legal words, at legal reasoning and rhetoric. In a short speech, this is so cool, this matters, look at this. In a short speech, a Roman lawyer was trained to use three tools, okay, three tools. Number one, the exordium, number two, the proof, and number three, the peroration. Don't be thrown by the Latin words. Here's just all they are. The exordium is where you exhort someone. It's the beginning. It's the introduction. It's where you get the blood up, and it always includes a thanksgiving. I mean, almost always includes thanksgiving and always includes a little brief argument. Then you've got the proof, the, the body of the letter. That proof is developed with an argument, always had two, two aspects to it, an ethical aspect and a feeling aspect, okay? Ethos and pathos were always part of it. Logos, not always, but ethos and pathos were. So you had ethics and feeling. And then the peroration is a closing summary. It always included these four things, these four things, a request, a big summary logical argument, that usually is not correct. It always included these big summary logical argument, an emotional appeal, and a personal connection with the judges. That last one seems weird to us because it seems unprofessional. They would think we're unprofessional. Uh, we don't close a courtroom argument by saying, looking forward to fishing with you next week, judge. You know, we don't, we don't do that. We don't talk about personal connection, but they did. That was considered appropriate because these were humans and you're dealing with, with human life. Okay, now look at how Philemon's structure unfolds. I put this stuff in your notes so you can follow it. Paul's exordium, the, the Thanksgiving in the intro, right? That's very clear. It's in verses 4 through 7. His proof is in 8 through 16, which we studied, we studied the last couple times. He, he appeals to pathos and ethos. His ethic, by the way, is utility and honesty. He says, look, do this because it's the, it's the right thing to do. It works best, and it's truthful. And then his ethical appeal, I mean, his pathos appeal is affection. I love you. You love me. We're a happy family. So he sang the Barney song. Got it? Okay. This is a Roman letter. It's written by a master craftsman of Roman thought. Philemon and his church would have read the letter this way. We have to do the same. So you've got his, his legal structure is this, exordium 4 through 7, proof 8 through 16, and then his peroration has every one of the four parts. Look, look at this. We, we just read these. The request, verse 17, his amplified argument, 18 through 19, the emotional appeal in verse 20, and then you can look at your text and you see the personal connection beginning in 21 through 22. All right, so when we get to verses 23 through 25, Paul has set up his personal connection brilliantly. These are heavyweights of the faith especially the famous Epaphras and the famous Luke. These people are Paul's co-workers. Paul's personal connection with Epaphras and Luke lends weight to his appeal to Philemon, just in case Paul's personal authority wasn't enough to get Philemon to jump onto this restoration train. Luke and Epaphras and all these saints are already on board. The, the whole letter flows to this emotional appeal with personal connection. Be a restorer, Philemon. Join as a co-worker with God's saints in this work of restoration. Look, here's how God rendered the exact same concept in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Everything's from God. 
who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are, to, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is what Mark, Aristarchus, Luke, Paul, the other people of God are doing. They are living as God's restoration agents. Philemon has the opportunity to join in as a co-worker in that ministry of reconciliation. And so do you. And so do I. Friends, we live in a fallen world. We live in a divided country. We live in a time and place where rampant fear makes people look for excuses to separate themselves from others. To really apply Philemon, let me just tell you, culturally, with what you are bombarded by every day, this, this is going to be very hard for you to live out. It's very hard for me to live out. This is tough. Knowing that the task might appear really daunting to us, God provides three great encouragements in that final greeting that we read. The number one encouragement is there is great blessing from hard work. Yes, it's hard, but there's great blessing from hard work. You see, Epaphras was famous to Philemon and his church at Colossae because he was the local boy who became an awesome leader. Here's how Paul describes Epaphras in the Colossian letter, the other letter he wrote to these same people. Colossians chapter 4, Epaphras, who's one of you, a slave of Christ Jesus, greets you. He is always contending for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. For I testify about him that he works hard for you and for those in Laodicea and for those in Hierapolis. In the tri-city region of Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Little Colossae, Epaphras is famous. He is known as a truly hard worker. The ministry of reconciliation is hard work, but there is great blessing from hard work. When you work hard in the ministry of your church, and many of you do, it, it, it's exhausting. But it's also deeply and truly fulfilling, isn't it? When you work hard at building relationships with people, it's, it's tough work. When you sit and listen to angry people who are flawed in their thinking, it's hard work. When you try and bring people together, it's hard work. It can be scary. It can be dangerous. It's places where other people don't want to go. But if you go there, it can be a great blessing. I want to show you. Let me, let me show you this. Here is our work of restoration in a 30-second video. You ready? 30 seconds. Here's what you and I are to do right here. Outside of a restaurant, closed-circuit camera, two guys just start fighting. This guy walks out with his pizza. What are they doing? Oh, we're just kind of watching. And they're fighting. Hey, hey, stop. Don't, what are you do? Quit. Here. Have, don't, dude, there's pizza. Look, here. Have a slice of pizza. Come on. Go ahead. Just, yeah, it's better. This is so much better than fighting. Here, you take this one. Deal. Here's your phone. You forgot your phone. There you go. All right. You good? Good? All right. Yeah, you go, you go that way. Let me get between you. There you go. All right. See? Pizza. Cool. All right. You, you go that way. We're all good. All right. See ya. Cool. The man stops a street fight by stepping in and sharing Pizza. The two men stop fighting, they take pizza, they move on. Sure, it's scary to step in into the work of reconciliation, but you have something even better than pizza. You have the love of God, and it's a great blessing. 
Second uplifting idea. I know this is hard, but there's a second uplifting idea, and that is that there is great encouragement from restored prodigals. Look again at that list of people mentioned in this letter. Mark, you see that? Mark wasn't famous. He was infamous. He's the coward who ran away during one of the earliest church planting trips, and yet now here he is, restored and useful. Onesimus, I told you, is a contract-breaking runaway, and yet now he's become a Christian, and he's ready to do what is right. Mark and Onesimus' journeys remind me of this note. I received this note not long ago from a friend of mine. He wrote me and he said, um, he said, Wayne, my antagonism toward my boss made me practically useless to him and it damaged the effectiveness of our whole lab. Over a period of several months, a counselor led me to see my own assumptions about the boss that were damaging our relationship. It was a painful process in the beginning, especially confronting my own demons, yet... It was great in the end as that boss became a mentor and friend and I became useful once again, close quote. This person wrote me that because I had pointed out that Onesimus' name means useful. I became useful once again. Many of us can relate, right? In our families, in our church, in the wider Christian world, we see, we see this tragedy of wasted lives. We see it in ourselves, we see it in others. Believers in Jesus who step off the straight highway of God to wallow in the gutter of sin. We see non-Christians doing incredibly selfish, stupid, damaging things, refusing to turn to the God who loves them. It's heartbreaking what we have to see in wasted lives. In fact, it's so heartbreaking when I look at it sometimes, I, I begin to understand why Jesus would stand and look down on Jerusalem and just weep over the city. And yet, the Lord who sees all that and lets us see it also shows us the other side of the story. So often we see children reconciled to their families and to health. We see lost people who are found through faith in Jesus. Bad employees become shining stars. People ask for help and God guides them out of the gutter and into the clean joy of his grace. I get tearful just thinking about it, folks. Restoration is beautiful. It's just beautiful. Sir Paul McCartney wrote a song about the beauty of restoration like Mark's and Onesimus's and, and mine and yours. He called it Blackbird. It's really, really good poetry. Look at what he said. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. All your life, you were only waiting for this moment to arise. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these sunken eyes and learn to see all your life, you were only waiting for this moment to be free. Blackbird, fly. Blackbird, fly into the light of the dark black night. Now, look at this poem. The darkness is palpable, right? Dead of night, broken wings, sunken eyes, dark black. And yet, there's incredible restoration here. The broken one learns to fly. The, the blind one learns to see. And, and the clever parallel, you were only waiting, you were only waiting, that, that tells us the moment has arrived to be free. Most significantly, there is light even in the dark black night. That, that last line is really important. In restoration, there is light that permeates the dark. There is light even in the dark black night. Amen? There's a third encouragement for us co-workers in restoration, and that is the term grace. The, the way is lighted, the Spirit is lifted in the grace of Jesus. We don't do all this work of reconciliation by our own flesh. We accomplish it by Jesus who empowers us spiritually. Look, look at John's sublime introduction to Jesus. Uh, John chapter 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or overcome it. That light in the dark black night, it didn't come from us. We're blackbirds. We are dark ourselves. The light comes from somewhere else. We know it comes from Jesus' life. All who trust in him are in him. We are enlightened. We are restored. We are empowered by his grace, not our own. It, it is a discipline of grace. We work hard to restore because of the unmerited love of God, not to earn his favor. Pray with me, please. With that in mind, let's pray together. Father, I pray for anyone who is studying with me today that does not know Jesus. I beg you to draw them to you. My dear fellow blackbirds, all your life you've been waiting for this moment, even if you didn't know it. You can't fly on your own. Your wings are broken. But by God, by his grace, you can. You see, my fellow sinner, Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he made a way for you. He came to this earth, and he gave his life, paying for the sin of everyone who would trust him. Believe on him. That's how you fly. It's not through your own strength. It's through grace. It's through unmerited favor of God. The Bible's very clear. You access it by trust. Acts chapter 16. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on him right now. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand. I want to rejoice with you. Super. Father, I pray for all these believers in Christ who are here. I pray that we will do the hard work of reconciliation because of the blessings, because of your grace, because it's so beautiful. And I beg you to empower us in that work as a church, as individuals, as koinonon. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, just before we take the offering, guys, hang on just a second. I got one thing for you real quickly. This was our last message in this past year's annual theme. Our annual theme, this is the last message in our annual theme, which was to use your powers for good. Real quickly, I'd like everybody to stand, and let's say our theme verse one more time. This was our vision verse for the past year. Our vision verse for the past year to use our powers for good comes from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Um, in Micah, we learned that Israel had begun to forget who they had begun to forget who they are. They weren't living out who they were in the public square, and and so God gave them, and subsequently us, this wonderful reminder to make sure that we know how to use our powers for good. Let's say it together: Micah six eight, mankind, he has told you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. That is the calling God extends to us to use our considerable powers for good. And that flows into our next annual vision, which unveils in two weeks. And no, I'm not going to tell you what it is. All right, I'll give you this hint. I'll give you this hint. It has to do with sustainability. That's all I'm going to tell you.